Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, the director of news at The Block. We are recording on Friday, May 8th, and I'm pleased to be joined by a very special co-host, Rebecca Ungenaro, a wealth management reporter at Business Insider. And on the other side of the mic, we have John Stein, the co-founder of robo-advisor Betterment, with over $20 billion under management. If you haven't noticed, folks, we are broadening the scope of the scoop, bringing on the sharpest guests beyond crypto in the fintech macro and business worlds. Today, we will be diving into how this ongoing financial and health crisis has impacted wealth management businesses, including Betterment, its checking account product, and how they are trying to remain competitive in an ever-changing and hyper-competitive market. John Stein, thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Frank. Hi, Rebecca. It's good to be here with you. It's really great to have you on. Great to have you. And it's great to have Rebecca on as well. Before you join the Zencaster, a nice plug for our podcast service tool, I was hearkening back with Rebecca on an interview I did with you, and I couldn't remember if we actually did this over the phone or in your offices down in Midtown, but it was an interview from 2017, one of our earlier conversations when I was covering FinTech at BI, and I asked you this question. And you were so hyped and excited during this interview, like the energy levels were off of the charts. Um, (laughs) And so I asked this question. It's been said that pure robo platforms could face trouble if there's a downturn. I went on to say without that handholding and someone to talk to, investors might pull. But I didn't finish the question. You interrupted. I loved it. You, You go, says who? I don't think that prop, <laughs> I don't think that prop really resonates with customers. Now, you guys have doubled in size in terms of your AUM and now we're being gripped by this crisis. So, I used to start all of my interviews at BI with this question of how's business, but more specifically, how is business in the midst of this ongoing COVID-19 crisis, John? I hope you enjoyed the history. I loved it. And 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 I love it. I love picturing me just like too much coffee, like so much energy, <laughs> you, can't, you can't take it in the office. But we've been hearing that question and I probably interrupted you because I am so familiar with that question since the day we launched, which was how will you do in a downturn? 
how will Betterment customers fare? What will happen? And I've answered it from day one with, I think we are built for downturns. Remember, we were born in the last financial crisis in 2008. I decided to start Betterment in 2010. We launched coming out of the the ashes of, of the financial crisis and collapse. At the time, people were telling me, don't start a financial services company right now. In, in retrospect, the timing is everything. And we were very lucky with our timing to start then. We've had a bull market for 10 years following that launch. And as a result, because everyone wants to ask the, the, the difficult question, I've, I've heard that so many times, what's going to happen? And I'll tell you what happened. I'll get to the point. We've seen record signups in the last quarter in April. We set an even higher record than we had in Q1. We've seen more growth than I expected. We had models ourselves predicting what would happen in the downturn, how many customers are going to withdraw based on what we'd seen in past downturns, you know, 10 or 15%. In March, the market was down 30% and we were outperforming those models. And it's not that the downturn doesn't affect us. Of course it does. We, our revenue is tied to assets under management. We feel pain or our own accounts are down. You know, my, my personal account uh, is affected by a, a downturn in the market and our customers feel it. But overall, our customers are staying the course. Our service is performing as it was built to do. And I believe, I mean, I, I see the data in, in signups. We're, we're going to come out of this stronger than we came into it. That's interesting. So you have strong momentum on the signup side, despite this ongoing crisis. When you look at those models and that data and juxtapose that with maybe the number of folks who are not making as frequent or as high contributions in that respect on the contribution side, is that meeting expectations or not? We look at contributions in a couple of different types. There's auto deposits, uh, I forget the latest numbers, but upwards of 50% of our customers have auto deposit turned on at any given time, meaning they're just contributing every week or every month or what have you. And we look at ad hoc deposits when customers uh, you know, decide separate from an auto deposit to contribute money or to roll over an IRA or something like this. In March, when markets were at their worst, remember the downturn started in, in February and bottomed out in March, we saw of all of our customers, 26% more customers making those ad hoc deposits, excluding auto deposits, ad hoc deposits, than were making withdrawals. We saw less than a 2% rise in the overall number of customers making withdrawals. So that's all of our customers. If you look just at millennials, um, our younger customers, 37% more were making deposits than withdrawals. So they were more likely to be making deposits than the average, which I found really, really interesting. I mean, maybe it's what you'd expect because they have a longer savings horizon, they have you know more to gain and less to lose from you know volatility in the short term. But they're deposit; they're more likely to deposit than people who have lived through more ups and downs in the market. They're more likely to deposit than people who are less likely to have lost their jobs. Millennials are about four times more likely in our own survey data to have lost a job than say a baby boomer. And it's just, it's crazy, uh, you know, how well behaved these younger customers are 
in, in a sense to me. It is striking to me because I am the exact opposite of this profile you're describing. I, I, John, I stopped my contributions for a couple of weeks on my 401k and I wanted to leave some dry powder on the floor for investing in some stonks, right? I wanted to make some big wall street level bets. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's interesting that that's not the case across the board, but Rebecca wanted to jump in with some data that she found fascinating. Well, you know, John, it's interesting. I mean, there's the robo report that, um, the investment research firm back in benchmarking puts out. They, you know, put your performance, at least of the betterment income portfolio at losing less than 1% during the quarter. I'm, I'm curious, just can you walk through a little bit of how you were monitoring the sentiment, how you were monitoring performance throughout the quarter, particularly with the volatility that we were seeing in March, early March, mid-March? When I say Betterment was built for times like these, one of the things I'm thinking about is that we're seeing our systems kicking into, into life and acting as they should. So for instance, in March, we traded $8.4 billion out of 22 in AUM. That's a lot. That's like, uh, and seven and a half of that was two-sided, meaning it's tax loss harvesting or rebalancing activity that we're doing on behalf of our customers. And when we're doing that, we're helping our customers to make either, you know, to save on their taxes or the rebalancing activity when the market was down and hit its bottom we were selling bonds and buying stocks for a lot of customers who have rebalancing on. And therefore, they were riding the, the rebound much more heavily than they would have been if they did nothing, which is what you know most passive investors do is nothing in times like this. So our system was helping people make the most of their money, which is what we're designed to do. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm happy to see it all, it all working. It doesn't always have to work out that way. There's certainly no guarantee of these kinds of things. But over the long term, you know, history has shown that you want to manage your taxes, you want to rebalance regularly. And these are the kinds of things that, that we do on behalf of our customers. Mm. And I'm just imagining how hectic that time must have been for you. I mean, I wonder, given just the, the model, it's not like you have a huge, you know, call center of, you know, hundreds of employees sitting there ready to take incoming, you know, worried calls and from clients. I'm curious how you were dealing with that what I imagine to be an onslaught of questions or issues, things that were happening during the volatility, during these uncertain times. I'm curious how you dealt with that in what was really an unprecedented few weeks. A few stats and anecdotes. <laughs> our our sign-up volume was 25% higher in Q1 2020 uh, than it had ever been before. Our Call volume in March was 50% higher than it was in January. January is usually a pretty busy month for us, um, but it was 50% higher in March. That's like a lot, but it's not 300%. It means it it was a level where we were able to continue to give our customers the kind of response um, that they've come to expect and uh, and they deserve. We have uh, staffed up. We actually had hired some temps for the busy season and we've leaned into hiring uh, on the other side of this but call volumes have actually dropped back down to pre-crisis levels and so we're we're serving our, our customers well i think now people you know people do call my I, I my own parents like were calling me i mean i was i always get emails <laughs> from customers but my parents are customers and I, you know they were calling me with 
more than they ever have, I think, like questions about their money. And honestly, on the, the, the day that the market was at its absolute bottom in March, they sent me a text and they said, you know, we're just, we're going to transfer a little money into our savings. We're going to feel better about that. And I called them, you know, it was too late to call them. I called them the next morning. I'm like, no, don't, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> like, we've talked about this. You stay at the course. They're like, well, it's too late. We already, we already did this. And uh, I'm just like, I, you know, like, I'm your son. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is my business. <laughs> like, just, just hang on. Uh, and you never know, right? Like, I guess I just, I tell that story to, to empathize and say, like, you know, I feel it too. And, and our team, our families, like, we all feel the volatility. And it's, it's a scary time. And I certainly, um, you know, have made a lot of investing mistakes. The advice I give is just to stay the course in times like this. That level of anxiety or those inbounds that are underpinned by anxiety, with all due respect to Mr. and Mrs. Stein, I'd imagine are the types of inbounds you'd see from older folks, right? And maybe the fact that Betterman's clientele is in that younger millennial 25, maybe going up to 40, 50-year-old group is the reason why you were able to handle that call pressure in a way that maybe um, more traditional wealth management firms wouldn't have been able to. I mean, we've seen it at the banks, right? Like I tried to address an issue with a credit card bill with Citi and I was on the phone for an hour and 30 minutes before I got to talk to someone, Chase, whom I bank with, you know, they were having two to three hour long wait times. So I think there's maybe there's the factor that you have two very different client bases that are playing into that. I agree with that. It's probably different client bases. It's different comfort with technology. Um, our customers generally are you know, pretty okay with serving themselves on, online with their tools. And when they do need to call us, I think an important difference too is like all of our CX is done in the US. I don't know what it is for City. I don't know what it is for Chase. Um, but I've heard for, uh, for many of the banks that have more offshore operations, it was harder for them to shift to a work from home environment. Maybe the tech setups weren't quite as good or the preparation wasn't as good. We found it pretty seamless for our entire team to start working from home uh, eight weeks ago now. And um, just kind of on a dime, we just, even before, you know, anyone said we had to, we were, we, we left the office and did a mandatory work from home just to test to make sure that we could. We ended up never coming back <laughs> uh, <laughs> because uh, it worked out it was really pretty seamless. And I'm grateful to my team for enduring as long as they have at home. And it's not always a great situation with family on top of you in, in Manhattan or wherever our team are uh, in, in small quarters. Um, but everyone's managed it well. And, and I think the technology has allowed us to serve our customers better. Yeah, no, there was a period for a few weeks that Citigroup or the company through which they manage these various credit card accounts were basically offline as they prepared for work from home setups. It was really frustrating. It was really because I had to wait two weeks. And then when I got on the phone with somebody after an hour and 40 minutes, the connection was horrible. So then I had to wait another 30 minutes. I'm just complaining at this point about my really bad... <laughs> Well, I think this is one of the reasons why people are considering new new services right now, right? Is, is I think it's why we're seeing more more sign up volume, and and particularly for our checking account. I mean, my goodness, uh, 
I don't think I expected to see all of you. Like we just launched this thing and the volumes are, are incredible. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. So this is a product that you guys just launched and you launched it in the midst of this crisis. I guess walk us through what a go-to-market strategy looks like as everyone's working from home, as folks are sort of a little maybe less keen to explore new financial products as they're maybe losing their jobs or seeing their wages depreciate or their retirement accounts depreciate. How do you go to market with a new product in that environment? I think it's all TikTok. We just we just need more TikTok videos. Actually, I wish that I wish that Zoom <laughs> Did you guys do TikTok videos <laughs> as part of your marketing. I wish that Zoom had a had an advertising unit that we could plug into. That would be great if we could just pop, like you know Zoom Zoom bomb people with uh, with Betterman ads would be would be nice. We've actually found we've increasingly been shifting toward social. We uh, we rely always on a lot of referral marketing. And the share of referral marketing has been going up month over month for the last several. I'm not sure how long the trend has been, but a couple quarters, right? We, we continue to see more and more um, kind of viral and uh, referral-driven marketing. Unpaid has grown significantly. So uh, right now, ads are cheap. Talk to anybody in any industry, and they'll, they'll likely say that online advertising is cheaper than it's ever been. So you can kind of do more with less. And uh, because a lot of advertisers, travel, what have you, um, aren't spending, consumers down. And as a result, uh, we're seeing cheaper, cheaper spend, but we're also, we don't have to spend as much because we're seeing more referral-driven uh, marketing right now. Since you brought up ads, I'll, I'll sort of dig into that a little bit. You guys are known for some of your big ad campaigns, making big pushes on that front and spending quite a bit of money. I think it's something that some of your competitors have jabbed you for. To what degree is that sustainable in the long run? And and what is your long-term marketing strategy going forward? At what point do you maybe pull back on that or, or maybe ramp it up? Big financial service companies do lots of advertising, right? You look at all the incumbent brands, the ones that you mentioned earlier, City, JP, Schwab, Fidelity. Many, many times what we do on, on marketing. We've done pretty scrappy things overall. I mean, our, our best performing ads ever were like me in the office in a blue sweater and kind of like leering at the camera, um, like uncomfortably close. Uh, we just recorded a video and we repurposed it for a remnant TV ad. And that ad cost us $5,000 to make. So I think. You know, you can do a lot with a little when you have a great product to sell and, uh, you know, some passionate people working on it. We've been pretty scrappy about it. It, it may feel like a lot. It may feel like we're, you know, a bit. We did have Maggie sit um, and, and some ads and she's obviously amazing. Was a, a good uh, brand ambassador, has been a good brand ambassador for Betterment. But today we're finding a lot of traction on, on these more social channels. Uh, we're doing less TV at the moment. And it's funny. I, I find... I mean, I haven't watched TV ads in years, right? And yet people still say, you know, if you want to build a big brand, you have to be on TV. I continue to hear that. In this time, in this time of stay-at-home coronavirus, when I might expect that more and more people are watching TV, anecdotally, people are watching less. Uh, maybe they're watching some Netflix here and there, but I don't know, with, with my family, with some of the folks I've talked to, we're, we're not watching any TV. We're just, we're actually finding 
we're less exhausted at the end of the day. And so sort of like less, less interested in turning it on. The work day is longer with like more breaks in between. I think I found the ad where you're peering into the TV. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm sharing it with the group. It's 30 seconds. So we can all, we can all. I never saw that ad myself and, until I was on a plane and my daughter who was like two at the time, uh, she's five now. She said, it's daddy. And I looked over and we're on JetBlue and like, there it is. Like, you know, I, I see myself on the, on the, the back of the headrest in front of us. It was, uh, that's the only time I ever saw it. That's too funny. You know, and John, another question on the, on the checking account. I, I would love to know if you could go into the timeline a little bit of that launch, you know, last July, I believe it was, you know, you came out with, you know, launching a new suite of products, including the high yield savings account. Um, and there was, you know, you launched the uh, waiting list for the checking account. I, I wonder if you can walk through why it didn't come out end of last year, what that looked like and go over that timeline a little bit. We launched our savings product, the Betterment Cash Reserve, as we call it, end of last year. And at the time that we launched that, we were already well into development on checking. We knew that we were going to be launching checking, and we wanted to come out with effectively both at the same time, although checking wasn't ready for prime time yet. So we launched with a wait list. And then soon after the Cash Reserve launch, um, we started letting people off of that wait list. But even then, we were just, we wanted to test things. We wanted to make sure. And since then, we've built so much. I mean, we, we started uh, we started refunding foreign transaction fees. We've always refunded every ATM everywhere in the world. We've built things like you can have multiple bank accounts connected to Betterment, which is a thing that you would expect to be able to do with a checking account. Um, but, you know, before we were kind of one link bank account at a time. Um, and now you can transfer among all of your accounts. So we've been improving it, uh, getting ready for this public launch that we just said. And John, I'll buy that same, you know, we're talking about marketing, we're talking about the type of advertising you're doing, and it, it brings some, you know, to mind a conversation Frank and I were having before this and, and uh, you know, themes that we both think about in our coverage areas, which is the, the competitive nature of robo-advice and, and the new products that are coming out. I always wonder, you know, as far as staying ahead of the curve, staying competitive, you have some of the legacy brands coming out with their own automated investing options. You have Vanguard coming out with theirs. You have Schwab having launched theirs a few years ago. I wonder what what is next beyond marketing, beyond as the, the, the competition really heats up and catches up to you guys, how what are you thinking of, you know, next and as far as staying ahead of that? Just this last week at team meeting at Betterment, uh, I shared our 2023 vision with the team. And it's it's not like, you know, I went in the closet and kind of came up with it. And, you know, I, I sourced all of these ideas from the team. Uh, it was all themes that were familiar to them, but it had been a while since we updated it, right? We had a 2020 vision and we built most of that stuff. So now we're on to this next, uh, this next phase. And the next phase for us begins with managing both your, yes, your long-term investments in retirement, which we've become known for as this robo-advisor or smart money manager, but also now your savings and your everyday transaction account. And we are this holistic money manager for today and tomorrow and someday. And what does that look like? How does that come to life? And the way that we 
told that story was through the eyes of our protagonist, Sasha, uh, which also happens to be my daughter's name. And it's what does she experience in her betterment account? And she sees things like a family dashboard, right? Where she sees all of her family's uh, accounts uh, in one place, uh, which Betterment does today. uh, And we continue to invest in that and make it better. We see uh, things like a smart plan where she has all of her goals aligned, which again, Betterment does today. We ask you about your goals and we create portfolios for each of those. But increasingly, we're bringing that into your everyday money to help you save more, to help you know that you're saving enough. And that, that kind of Ease of budgeting, ease of helping you stay on track day to day such that you will reach your long-term goals is tied directly to the founding mission of Betterment to empower people to do what's best with their money so they can live better. So we're really realizing that that mission, uh, I think, in this 2023 vision. And why is it different from what, say, incumbents are doing and some of the other companies that, that you mentioned? Well, the way that most of the banking world makes money is off one, pushing people into debt, two, charging what they call convenience fees for you know, overdrafts or late payments, which are really annoyance fees, and three, by robbing you blind on the cash that you keep with them. Banks make most of their money off not paying you the interest that you deserve. That's by far the biggest profit center for the big national banks. And so that's why the national bank savings rate is as paltry as it is. Our uh, cash reserve pays five times that national average now. And frankly, people should be investing a lot of that money, not just keeping it in a savings account so that they can actually keep up with inflation. They should actually be growing it over the longer term. And as a cash advisor that is also a, a fiduciary money manager, I believe we're better positioned than all of these institutions to do what's right for customers, to help them make the most of their money because we understand them We think about them, their goals, and we know what their money can do for them. I mean, that definitely speaks to the main edge, I think, the fintechs and the robo-advisors have when it comes to savings products is the client, the end client, is, is getting more bang for your buck. If we're thinking about prices, price competition, that makes me think of razor thin margins too. And this has been a conversation that's been going on for several years. Just recently this year, we saw Vanguard go all in, right, with their Vanguard Digital Advisor, 0.20% annually. Wells Fargo recently cut its management fee to 35 basis points. And there's this pricing pressure that's been going on for, for years. So the question is, is Betterment going to continue to drive that? Do you see lowering your sort of management fees on the wealth management side playing a role? Or maybe you're comfortable at where you're at right now from a industry perspective, if you're looking at the competition broadly. Yeah, most like Vanguard is always kind of an extreme and has driven, I think, a lot of the pricing pressure on the index fund industry. Most of the uh, incumbent robos that are out there are priced at double what Betterment charges. Uh, We charge 25 basis points. Um, Many of them... You know, if you think about the actual fees that say Schwab is making actual revenues, it's like twice what we charge because of how much uh, cash they require you to own because they put you into their own funds, etc. And same with Vanguard, right? Like they're forcing you to use your own funds. And the result is you get a worse product. You're not able to do smart things like tax loss harvesting. You can't asset location isn't a thing that they'll do for you. And so 
when you think about value, nobody competes with Betterment, right? Like we're, there's no guarantees in investing. I, I, I always like to point out, right, that you can't, uh, we're not stock pickers. We're not sort of guaranteeing a fixed level of return on investments. But over time, and on average, we're going to do all the things for you that you should do with your money. And those things should produce a better return, net of taxes, net of fees, than what you can get from anywhere else in the market that I know of. And that driving of value for customers, that's why I started the company. It's where I think the incumbents fall way short and have not actually been thinking about their customers and their goals and how to make the most of their money. They've been selling products. And yes, it's a thin margin business, but we, uh, we're worth it. And that's why customers are choosing us. And I think it's why we've continued to grow. Listen, it's not just the major banks that are trying to push product or cross-sell. When Rebecca and I were preparing for this conversation yesterday, I was sharing an anecdote from a couple of years ago. I was in the offices of a pretty major fintech company, and I was ushered into one room where I guess they have like strategy meetings or whatever. And there was a whiteboard that had all these arrows, all these different, you know, financial terminologies and, and product types. There was the word cross-selling, underlined, big font. It makes me think today, like you have all these fintechs or so many of these companies that are trying to get into stocks and lending and and this product and that product and then trying to, in a sense, operate a similar business as as the bank. So how do you, in thinking about how you're expanding, avoid some of those pitfalls? One of my team said to me after seeing the 2023 vision, you know, what I really love about this and what I think is so important is that we work on the connective tissue between these things. So it doesn't just feel like another account or, hey, would you also like to have an auto loan? <laughs> like, which is so weird. I just like, you know, the way that cross-selling works at so many of these institutions is like, well, we have mortgages. Like, let's go and sell mortgages. Let's go and push that. One of our CX uh, agents told me, um, he actually uh, used to work at Wells Fargo, which is, you know, known well for its cross-selling. Um, Eight is and, great, and, John. Eight is great. <laughs> he is great. He's amazing. Uh, he's, he's one of our best uh, uh, CX agents. And on, uh, he also worked at, at City. And he was telling stories about how at these some of the big banks that he worked at, they would just have a special of the month. And when customers called in, you got spiffed as an agent for selling whatever the special product was. So more personal loans, we want to sell more personal loans, offer everyone a personal loan. Sure, you know, some technology has allowed banks to move a little bit beyond that, but not really. I mean, you get these offers too, you know what it's like. And I just don't think that they see customers as people, they don't have the full picture. And that's where our vision is different. That's where our execution today is different. We understand your goals, we understand what you need, and we're not just pushing whatever on you, we're trying to help you reach those goals and getting you the right product you need. We don't manufacture our own products, unlike most of these institutions. We don't make mutual funds, unlike all of the competition that's out there that we've mentioned. We just buy the best ETFs on the market for you. We're unique in doing that. Uh, and so we're able to be an advisor, a trusted advisor. And it's just a, it's just a better position if you want to build the, the best service for a customer. 
I hope you're enjoying the episode so far, but real quick, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Pax Gold. Pax Gold is the world's only regulated gold token, and it's the fastest and easiest way to own and trade the highest quality physical gold. One Pax Gold token represents one fine troy ounce of a 400 ounce London good delivery gold bar stored in Brinks's vaults in London. When you buy Pax Gold, you own physical gold. The value of Pax Gold is always directly tied to the real-time market value of gold. Pax G is an ERC-20 token on Ethereum and can easily be moved or traded anywhere in the world 24-7. With Pax G, anyone can now own a fraction of an LBM-accredited London Good Delivery Gold Bar, and that's with zero storage fees. Trade it today on leading exchanges like Kraken, FTX, and Ipbit, or earn interest on your Pax Gold holdings through Nexo or Crypto.com. Learn more or purchase Pax Gold at Paxos.com slash Pax Gold. You know, John, you've mentioned a couple of times now this this 2023 vision, and I'd love to hear more about that um, with as much uh, detail as you can share at this time. I mean, you know, I would, you know, is there more you can share with, you know, what you are planning? A lot of it revolves around this smart plan for our customers that we're operating on today. But now we've added your checking account, your savings, and uh, and how much you should contribute from those things into each of your goals. Two, it's um, there's this this family element to it, right? Um, I think that that's our customers are millennial professionals and their families. And when we think about customers, we don't, you know, of course we have single people as customers and, and they operate in a family too. You know, everyone has parents <laughs> and many have kids or are thinking about kids or thinking about getting married, et cetera. Uh, and so we, we live not as individuals, um, even though so many of our accounts are set up as an individual retirement account or whatever. You know, so many customers use joint accounts for checking. So many customers use joint accounts for savings. And we really think that the right way to think about people is in the context of their family. And this idea of interstitial tissue or, or connective uh, tissue is important to us, that everything should be better together. It's not just having your checking account with us and your savings and your investments. It's how can we better serve you because you have all of those things together. What's the, what's the value there? And, you know, I believe your, your investments should respond to short-term changes in your savings rate. Um, you should be topping up certain things, um, you know, more when you're, when you're flush uh, and you should be drawing down certain accounts in times like these, um, you know, if you have to draw on your savings. But a lot of people don't have an advisor that's helping them do all of that. Well, Betterment is that advisor. And I think our, our 2023 vision is about helping people do the right things with their today money as it relates to their longer term money. What percentage of clients on the traditional side, as in your first business, the wealth management business, what percentage of, of those clients are you capturing with the new checking account product? How much crossover is there? So it's super early and, and tough to say. Um, we're seeing a surprising, to me, number of uh, accounts coming to sign up for the checking account, and the, the volume is beyond anything we've seen. Now, part of that is because we're just addressing a bigger audience, right? Yeah. If you 
if you're looking for to invest, you're speaking, unfortunately, I think, to about 25% of Americans who have, you know, enough money to be, yes, paying the bills, yes, out of, you know, expensive debt, and now ready to invest. But, you know, you have maybe four times the audience uh, when you're talking about a checking account. And so volumes, response rates, uh, sign-up volumes, you know, per, per dollar of media spend are just a lot higher with a, with a checking account. Also, you can address younger people, right? Uh, people who are earlier in their in their financial journey, and uh, you know, everyone needs a, needs a checking account. And so that's part of our thinking around the launch, right? Is is um, addressing people before they need their investments, and then helping them build toward those longer term goals. So the checking account feature and the savings account feature can funnel in one day potentially those wealth management clients as opposed to maybe you guys building out this this new checking account product on the back of the wealth management business. Yeah, they're very closely tied together. Uh, they're, they operate well together and cross-sell is going to be a piece of it, meaning I think some of our already and a lot of our existing customers have adopted the checking account. But we have every day even more new customers, new to betterment customers coming in uh, for that checking account than we have, say, existing customers sliding over. It's interesting. Taking a step back and, and looking more broadly out on the fintech landscape, outside of the robo-advisor space, you see the brokers are just on fire. I mean, I think I saw the Wall Street Journal report that the number of trades going through TD Ameritrade tripled after they slash commission fees to zero, you see Robinhood, I mean, raising $280 million despite all of the tech outages that they've had and despite <laughs> some of the regulatory hiccups they've had. It's kind of a weird question, but like, and I know that you're going to answer no, but I guess like there must be some degree of envy or, or just awe at them sort of really benefiting from these this this bout of volatility and and just this current market environment obviously i'm sure you're not envious of it but i'd be curious to just get your take on what you think of of that market even though you're not directly in it most of your clients are probably also picking stocks right so it's not like you're completely out of that world i i said uh you know early on that i think that customers who are just looking to trade individual stocks already have lots of options where they can do that and they're well served. And, you, know, you mentioned TD and, and Robinhood and there's uh, dozens of other places that people can go and just buy stocks. And I think I underestimated, uh, I definitely underestimated the extent to which mobile uh, was going to change that. Robinhood's success in, in my view is just bringing trading to mobile and free, right? Like that, the word free is obviously super compelling. Uh, even if it's not really free, um, those are big draws, uh, and it's a whole. There's like it's a very popular brand among millennials, right? Um, people who want to trade individual names like Tesla or you know uh, Bank of America or whatever it is, like uh, can go and do that in a more accessible way, maybe than they could in the past. Now, is that good for people? Of course not. It's terrible. Um, it's like. It's just, uh, it's just the worst. Uh, it's um, John. John, is it gambling? Is it gambling? Of course, of course, it's gambling. Um, you know, individual stock picking, like 
should it be allowed? Yes. Um, you know, but, yeah, of course, but is yeah. it, is it, is it good for you? No. Um, it's just, uh, it's not a way to make, to make money. It's, it's just like gambling. And, uh, and if people, I think we have to accept customers as they are. Right. And we have to accept customers, um, you know, want to do these things. And so we say, if you want to do that with 5% of your money, like by all means, like it's better to do that with 5% of your assets uh, and sort of get it out of your system than to do it with all of your money. Uh, but if you want to make the most of it, don't just pick stocks. Don't, don't actively trade it. I just shared a tweet I tweeted a few days ago. This is a really crazy chart. It shows Carnival Cruise stock ownership on Robinhood. And right around March 11th, it just skyrockets the number of holders on the Robinhood platform in that name as the price just, you know, plummets. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to see sort of this corner of the market take off in a way that, you know, you noted you you underestimated. I think I did as well. Putting the sort of brokers aside for a moment. Um, Rebecca and I were also talking yesterday about the larger wealth management firms in the traditional side of the market, the UBSs, the Merrill. We were actually, before this whole shutdown and this coronavirus gripped the global market, we were at a UBS event for some fintech. Do you remember what the purpose of that was? It was some like fintech company roadshow or something? Yeah, they're fintech uh, developments more broadly um, as far as the different features that were available to their wealth management clients who, of course, have you know their UBS financial advisor as well as their online app products as well. Yeah. So, I mean, they're bringing out this, this app that they renovated or, or revamped. And it was funny to me because they're gloating about these aspects of the app that covering the fintech space for so long, I knew that this was something that younger, more agile firms had rolled out three, four, five years ago, uh, some of these functionalities. And, and you know, we can sort of go back and forth about how they're so behind. And, and honestly, they still are behind in many respects, especially on the UX, UI aspect of it. But I'd be curious, Sean, when you look at the bigger players, and I know it's a long-term game, and, and I know if you just look at the momentum of the company, how strong it's been. But when you think about what keeps you up at night, what is it from the perspective of thinking about the larger players and what they might be able to do? Is it maybe they snap up uh, one of your competitors in an acquisition? Is it maybe they finally, you know, figure something out on the product side? What, what are you most concerned about? It's been fascinating to see all the M&A activity in the space in Q1, you know, before a lot of this happens, uh, Schwab and TD. TD is not a startup, <laughs> but like some pretty massive M&A there. We saw E-Trade uh, and Merrill. So two of the, you know, smaller, but certainly not small, uh, more tech forward firms in TD and E-Trade got snapped up by larger, slower incumbents. Now, this was, what, 15, 20 years after, after those firms started. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it wasn't a quick process. But yeah, uh, over time, these things happen. Um, they were pretty rich uh, valuations. I think that the E-Trade traded at something like, I want to say it was 2500 per customer 
right? $2,500 per customer was the, was the transaction price. Uh, and I think that in both cases, they were effectively monopolization moves, right? Um, it was uh, in the case of E-Trade, it was a lot about their corporate employee stock option plan. Merrill already owns the number, like uh, Solium, they bought it a couple of years ago, which is one of the other players in the space. And so buying E-Trade, they now are dominant in that employee stock stock option plan space and, uh, and have, have price control. The Schwab TD merger, while people talk about the retail investor, that's not Schwab's focus. It's not nor, nor TDs, it's institutional. It's registered investment advisors, independent investment advisors. It's two thirds of Schwab's business. And people talk about trading as a focus for Schwab. It's not. Cash is where they make two thirds of their money. And so it's uh, advised customers and paying those people nothing on their cash is, is the point. And by buying TD, they got a 70% market share in that space. Now they had 50 before TD was 20. Uh, so again, a dominance uh, position that they were looking to acquire. Our, you know, strategically, how do I think about, about the space? I think about threatening these companies where it hurts, right? Um, so on the cash side, um, we're actually paying a fair interest rate. We're out there every day fighting to pay as much as we can on cash reserve. Uh, these are unprecedented times where interest rates are zero, right? The effective Fed, Fed funds rate went to zero. Yeah. Uh, and still we're paying 40 basis points, uh, which is, uh, you know, we get really technical here, but in the kind of like broker deposit market or cash management market, like, it is rare that you find such a good, um, you know, broker deposit rate. I don't think any of our competition in the broker deposit market um, has yeah, a you're, higher, you're, you're, higher rate right now. You're beating me on that. <laughs> We're out there looking, fighting for our customers all the time in this, in a way that, you know, these incumbents just don't. And, uh, and on the uh, investment advisor side, we have the best, I, I think we have the best offering in market for advisors who are looking for a platform to better manage client assets. And so folks like, you know, you probably know, uh, like Josh Brown and his liftoff service, like they're using Betterment to power their excellent advisory practice. Uh, and in times like these, they're taking advantage of our tax loss harvesting and our rebalancing and all that automation so they can spend more time managing clients, talking to clients, reaching out, making sure that every, everything emotionally is okay with that client. The plan is in order, um, all of the, that kind of stuff. So I think those, I think we're threatening those firms um, no less today than we were 10 years ago. And I think uh, there's been some M&A. I think you'll continue to see more. That was a great dissection, John. It really was. And, you know, to round out the conversation and just to clarify for listeners, I, I think, John, you're referring to the Morgan Stanley uh, E-Trade deal with their Morgan's Solium acquisition, which is now ShareWorks. Thank you. I said Merrill, but I Yeah, just to, <laughs> just to throw that out there. And it's, you know, it really brings up what, you know, we really wanted to um, ask you about, speaking of the institutional side, is more about betterment for business and betterment for advisors. Um, you already broke down a little bit of what's going on there, but can you go into more plans that you have on those sides? I think it is unique. And of course, you know, to me and and in the wealth management world, it's, oh, you know, the, the robo also has, you know, a whole service for advisors that I think is a little less known. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on there? what the plans are there for the rest of the year going forward, um, you know, that you have planned there on both fronts. 
We've been growing the investment advisory practice um, faster in Q1 than we ever have. So similar to the retail business, um, but really in, in terms of assets, in terms of revenues, we've seen more inflows than we ever have in the advisory business uh, in Q1. And April has been another, another strong month there too. The other thing I'll mention is that we have also, and I, it's a big business for us now, is, is the 401k business. Um, we've been selling to employers, um, call it Betterment for Business, but it's 401ks. And, uh, and that's been a great source of counter-cyclical deposits for us. I've noted in, uh, in every downturn in the past, we, we launched a business in 2016, every downturn in the past, boy, 401k contributions just continue despite whatever the market's doing. And this is no different, right? Even on days where we see people panicking and, and maybe we see people selling stocks, everyone's still contributing to their 401k. <laughs> you know? And so that's just, a, it's been a great business. And now we're leaning in to, to grow that. It's, it's America's most accessible 401k. I guess I'm the only outlier here who, who paused 401k contributions and I'm going to pay for it one day. I'm going to pay for it because my 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 stocks that I dived into are not doing that great. I, I bought like a bunch of shares of this um, mining company, not doing great, not doing great at all. Anyway, I think that's a really sexy way to end 401ks. I think when anyone thinks of 401k, they think of they think of they think of the sexiest things. So John Stein, Betterment CEO. What a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for reaching out. Congrats on the new on the new checking account product. We'll have you back on once this is all said and done and we're getting to be around each other again. And I'll look forward to that. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, hope to see you both soon and hope you're safe and well. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Frank. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net dot net slash pro.